several years ago, we changed the law so that the Medicare tax didn't cap out at the same level as the Social Security tax. It continues to be paid as it goes up because everybody gets Medicare. It would be a little bit of a departure from the principles that have run the system so far, which is if you pay into it, the more you pay into it, the more you get out of it on Social Security. Because upper income people would not get more, they would just pay that 6.2% tax. But it would keep Social Security alive. Something is going to have to happen in the next 10 years to keep Social Security alive. Once more unto the breach, dear friend. Else fill the wall up with our English dead. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and welcome back to another exciting episode of the, or second hour, of the person, all wealth coach, as yep. performed by chat GPT. No, not really. We, <laughs> we, we just talk all. that clumsily sometimes. Yeah, I do anyway. I do. I'm fully admitting. Um, we are here to talk some more about the economy and about uh, some personal stuff too, personal finance stuff. At, uh, there is a bill that has been introduced by John Larson into the House of Representatives, which has a lot of merit. It's called the Social Security 2100 bill. I don't know if you've heard anything about it, but basically what it says is it starts off by saying there would be a minimum social security benefit for somebody who qualifies for social security, which raises the payments to the lowest income people. It increases the taxable taxable amount uh, that people receive from social security uh, anywhere free. I, they, it, it, I think it just for inflation after the first year. But if, if, if for instance, a couple's income is over $50,000, then they pay 85%. They get taxed on 85% of their social security. But the big thing it does is it imposes the social security tax on everybody. No matter how much money you make, you know, there's a cap right now. If you make too much money above that level, you don't pay social security tax because you, your social security doesn't go up above that level. And the end result of that law, that bill, according to the social security actuaries, is that will it will extend the life of the social security trust fund, if it's enacted this year, in this Congress rather, to about 2065. Now, for those of you who've forgotten about this or may not have known about it in the first place, in 2034, the actuaries of the Social Security Trust Fund have said the fund will run out of money. That is not a long time from now. That's 11 years from now. I think many of the people who are listening will be affected by that. If the law remains the same, at that point when the trust fund runs out of money, the payments will drop to 74% of what's currently being paid. So if you're receiving social security or you anticipate receiving social security in the future, look at the numbers and say that 26% drop about 10 years from now, you will have roughly three quarters of that income, not the whole thing. If the new bill were to be passed, which it wasn't last year. It's come forward this year with some minor modifications been reintroduced. It extends the life of the Social Security Trust Fund to 2065. I think since it's relatively painless, admittedly, it does mean that people of higher income will suddenly have an additional tax that they have to pay on their wages if you're making over $400,000 a year. 
Uh, and, and that's going to upset the people who make more than $400,000 a year because they will then be paying Social Security and Medicare taxes again. But it will keep the Medicare trust fund and the Social Security trust fund alive to 2065, which I think is a reasonable thing to do. And uh, One of the things that I need to point out here, if you're listening to this program and you wish for Social Security to continue for you or for other people that are receiving it, by definition, that is socialist. That's not bad. Having a safety net for our people that are in retirement is a good thing, but it is by definition economically a socialist institution. It is in the name, social security. I want to lay that out just to get it out in the open. When people say, hey, I don't want to pay above a certain amount of, you know, if, if you're if you know anything, if you're self-employed, uh, if you know anything about paying taxes for self-employed, when you pay, pay your quarterly taxes, when you're looking at it, your self-employment tax is the replacement for the for the Social Security and Medicare part of the taxes that are done by the employer and the employee. Um, but there's a cap. If you make above a certain amount of money, you don't pay the taxes on that money anymore. And that cap was put there because they said, well, you're, you, we're capping the amount of Social Security income you will receive, so you might as well cap how much taxes you'll pay. Something, again, to point out, this is not an advocacy for it or against it. Simply, if you support Social Security in, in, in any form, that's a socialist program, and this is a socialist method of paying for it. Anytime you have taxes that are based, uh, have a higher percentage on people that make more money, that is also a socialist method of taxing. So what is being said here is we pay for this by taxing people that have more, that are making more money. That is one method of paying for it. And it's right now the only effort in Congress to save the system. And if you don't save the system, there's going to be a 26% reduction in income when the trust fund doesn't have enough money anymore. So you want to, I'm going to hand it back to you to let you take well, it back. The, the cap, by the way, on income above which social security taxes are not paid is 160,200 in 2023. I wanted to, it rose 13,200 because it rises with inflation. Um, and, and everybody below that pays 6.2% social security tax on the first 160,000. And that, that's true yeah. for the people that are capped out and don't pay it above that. They are paying the max amount, in essence. It's not like they're avoiding taxes. They're paying the, max, the most amount being paid by anyone in Social Security or the people that are capped out. And, of course, the employer also pays money into the Social Security Trust Fund, matching the money that you pay into the Social Security Trust Fund, unless you're self-employed, in which case you pay both of them. Well, that is the way it was set up originally. The problem with the way Social Security was set up originally is the life expectancy in the United States with Social Security starting at 65 when it was set up was 66, which means roughly half the people were expected never to draw on the Social Security. The understanding in the was that people, twice the number of people would pay into Social Security as would take it out. No, man, I got a sound effect for that. Well, it was based on the life expectancy tables of the day. Right. It was a completely accurate assumption. And it's a good number when you say half of you won't get this, isn't that great? It'll make it work. But then we decided to live longer. <sighs> okay, go ahead. Now we're living and longer. 
course, the problem is that our life expectancy, at least some of us have a life expectancy that is rising. Now, that's life expectancy actually fell during COVID because a lot of people died of COVID and will die early because of COVID, a very substantial number of people in the United States. We're talking in the millions here. But post-COVID, the life expectancy is starting to inch back up again. Uh, and Hold on, I have to, to play the sad sound effect. People are living longer again. You, right, you're, I think you're beating that sound effect. Yeah, I mean, I'm just saying, all of these people need to just stop living so long and we'll save Social Security. Uh, no, yeah. I, I, that's not the solution. We need to figure out a better solution to Social Security than eating old people. Um, that Eating the old is not a good way to maintain Social Security. So where, where do we get the money? Ago, several years ago, we changed the law so that the Medicare tax didn't cap out at the same level as the Social Security tax. It continues to be paid as it goes up because everybody gets Medicare. It would be a little bit of a departure from the principles that have run the system so far, which is if you pay into it, the more you pay into it, the more you get out of it on Social Security. Because upper income people would not get more, they would just pay that 6.2% tax. But it would keep Social Security alive. Something is going to have to happen in the next 10 years to keep Social Security alive. And it, the later, the longer we wait to raise the taxes, the more painful the tax increase will have to be, the larger the tax increase will have to be to keep it alive. I strongly encourage you to contact your congressman and say that you support the Social Security 2100 Act. I'm sure if you make over $160,000 as an individual, you will not like the idea that you're, if you make that on, on regular wages, uh, that it will go up. Uh, there's also a provision in there to tax some investment income. I don't have the details on that. I haven't looked deeply. I'm, long, I'm looking long at enough. it here. It does that. That was a proposal that's not in the original plan. It um, wasn't in the original plan, but I think they brought it in this year. They made right. or they dropped it this year. One, I don't know which. But the bottom line to it is, we either are going to and and this is this is the thing I was going to say about the deficit, which we talked about last hour, and the fact that that there's members of Congress who are willing to go to draconian links to lower our spending. You could, there is literally, folks, no way we can cut spending enough to even come close to balancing the budget in these relatively healthy economic times. I know this has got to be one of the most unpopular things I could possibly say. Our, our federal income taxes are too low. Uh, I hate paying federal income taxes at least as much as anybody else does maybe more. But there's a reality. If we don't want to see the deficits continue to pile up at a phenomenal rate of speed until eventually we can't pay the bill, we have to do one of two things. We have to cut majorly in the United States government, which and means that would and the only require, things we could that would require us cutting either Social Security, Medicare, defense, or other major retirement stuff. The biggest two items Social Security Trust Fund, of course, is in there, and the Medicare Trust Fund is in there. Let's set those aside for just a moment because this bill addresses them. Let's address just regular federal expenditures that the uh, members of Congress want to cut. The only places that we can cut enough to make any significant difference, even get us back to a significantly lower deficit, are defense and civil service retirement and military retirement. Those, those, military, are, those are not military things we want to cut. Military, civil service, retirement, and the defense budget. I, I wish I could tell you that there was much bigger things we could do, uh, that somewhere else we could cut waste and fraud somehow. 
there is certainly a massive effort ongoing continuously to cut, cut waste and fraud. However, with each bill that's passed designed to cut waste and fraud, they increase the waste. Why do they increase the waste? I was in the Army, and I got to look at the methodology that's used to price things in the Army. And the problem is that Congress has set so many requirements that the bureaucracy and restrictions and minimum requirements for something as simple as an Allen wrench are so huge that I had an Allen wrench in the tool room of the Armored Cavalry Troop that I commanded that was worth a thousand dollars, little Allen wrench that, that by the way, you could go down at that point to Walmart and buy it for a few cents, but it was worth a thousand dollars. Why? Because of all the restrictions that had been placed in it on making that Allen wrench. Yeah. So if you uh, think that the words prevent waste and fraud when said together like that is an oxymoron. It's a word that means the opposite of itself. How do you prevent fraud in the government? Well, by having lots of people check to make sure that what you're doing isn't fraud. Well, that's wasteful to have lots of people check it. <laughs> it prevents the fraud though. So it's, it's, it's a difficult, difficult thing. We need to have oversight over the government to make sure it's not spending money improperly, but you can't do that for free. Oversight over spending costs money. It's, it's completely horribly nightmarish to think about it from that perspective. But if we don't spend money on preventing fraud, we get fraud. And the Allen wrench costs $1,000 because they're putting it in their own pocket. If we don't prevent the fraud, then we have to have 97 different people inspecting it along the way, which costs the same amount of money as the person putting it in their pocket. We got a better, we got to have a better way of doing this. Uh, hopefully, and, and, we can automate it and blockchain it. And but it, when the government does it, it's going to be inexpensive. It's going to be expensive and inefficient anyway. You look at it. My recommendation is to simply, of course, I don't think we could get all the literally hundreds of bills that affect the manufacture of that Allen wrench off the books. Um, militaries are by definition inefficient. They're not designed to make money. They're designed to get something done. And unfortunately, the politics come into it pretty quickly. The Air Force for many years has been trying to get rid of the A-10, but they, the, the places where the place, I don't remember the name of the congressman, but there's some very powerful congressmen, uh, and, congressmen and senators who would uh, lose the manufacturing of the A-10 or parts for the A-10 in their districts who've kept the A-10 alive for a long time. The A-10 is not an effective aircraft anymore, and the Air Force has very gradually been phasing them out. But they wanted to get rid of them 20 years ago and couldn't. So we have a problem and we need to do commercials. I just sent you a link from the uh, treasury.gov fiscal data, and it calculates the spending done by the U.S. government. Um, mm. And the spending on the U.S. government, this isn't talking about which percentage of it is debt and which percent of it is uh, revenue. Um, but when you add in Social Security, health, Medicare, income security, which is kind of all related to the same stuff, you get 61% of the spending. You throw in national defense and now you're at 74%, and then interest on the debt, and you're at 84%. Now, we're, ha we're not talking about education or veterans' benefits yet, so we're going to throw veterans' benefits in there too because this is an entitlement thing. Uh, if we could, now we're talking about 89% of the budget is defense and entitlement. That's, that's what you're dealing with. We don't want to cut Social Security. We don't want to cut Medicare uh, and when you're talking about national defense at a time when 
major powers are invading their neighbors just for the fun of it or threatening it. We can't cut back on that. That means 90% of what we're doing is entitlements and defense. That means that leaves 4% for education. That's true. 2% for transportation. Also true. Community and regional development, 2%. And other, 4%. So where do we cut? And this is the thing that when people come and then we say we got to cut back on fraud and waste, Social Security's got some fraud in it. And if you can find the fraud, you, there's actually rewards for that. You can get great benefits for finding Social Security fraud or Medicare fraud because we instituted big reward programs for reporting it. You can make a lot of money by finding somebody who's doing the fraud. The problem with it is there's just not a lot of it. As a percentage of the total budget, it's there, but it's not as high as a Nike shoe store and, and crime. Crime for a Nike shoe store represents a larger, much larger percentage of their bottom line than fraud in Social Security and Medicare. Now, it could just be that we're not finding it all. But I think with the rewards being as high as they are for finding it, that we're finding a lot of it. So there could be some more out there, and we could possibly bring that down, bring the price of Social Security and, and health care at the governmental level, including Medicare and Medicaid and all of that, we could bring that down, but only by a small amount. So cutting the budget, we have to cut things that nobody wants to cut. Nobody wants to cut Social Security. Nobody wants to cut Medicare. So that leaves cutting the budget as not a viable side of things. So where else can, what else can we, well, we can stimulate growth. We can put stimulus into the account. Well, that's more money. Where do we get that from? Debt? Well, that's why we have a deficit. Uh, because these other areas that we don't wish to cut, anything else that we're doing is debt. That means we're left with only increasing revenue. That's taxes. I don't like that either. But if we're going to continue to spend like this, at some point, we're going to have to do it. Five years ago, net interest on the debt was only 2% of the budget. It's now 10% of the budget and growing because interest rates are up. So how do we come up with the money? Well, we could forgive all of those student loans. Well, no, because those student loans are actually revenue to the government. Well, we could forgive them for people that are in public service and use that as a benefit. Okay, well, that's more debt. I'm not saying it's a bad idea. I'm not saying everybody has great student loans, so they should just pay them. I'm not saying any of that. What I'm saying is if we pay the student debt back for them at the governmental level, we get less revenue. Do we want to increase our interest rate on student debt? Well, that's a direct investment in our productivity later on down the road. Our economy grows and our tax revenue grows when we invest in education. People that have student loans tend to pay more in taxes than people that don't. And people that paid off their student loans tend to pay a lot more in taxes than people that don't. Well, why is that? Well, because they're better educated. They have better paying jobs. So they pay for themselves. That's cool. And, and forgiving that might lead them to go on and make even more money. That could be a stimulus. But it's more debt for us because where do we get the money to pay it back? Well, we just forgive it. Okay, well, that means that in essence, on the balance sheet, it's negative. <sighs> it sounds like we're advocating to raise taxes. Yes. And we are. And we're going to be the ones that are in the, in the central crosshairs when it happens personally. And we, I mean, we're, I'm a libertarian and I'm saying we, if we're going to keep doing this, we have to raise taxes. Well, I wish that people would take the money that they were paying into social security and could invest it in a 
and, and, and a portfolio kind of like a TSP. Well, that would be a better alternative. Yes, it would. But a lot of people in Britain did that and blew their money by timing the market completely wrong. And the government still had to come back and save them. So some kind of education program to teach them how to invest the money might be nice instead of just saying, here you go. <laughs> no safety net. You try that balancing act. And we're about out of time. This is the Personal Wealth Coach with Jeff and Jake. McClure. Uh, this is the Personal Wealth Coach, and we do make uh, other statements than really bad puns about songs. Uh, we are uh, a, a finance program, as you would probably guess from the Personal Wealth Coach being our title. The Personal Wealth Coach is not just the title of the program. It's also the name of an SEC-registered investment advisory firm. All right. Well, does that mean that the SEC likes us? What would you say to that, sir? I would say that the SEC is professionally dislikes almost everyone. Right. That is no implication of the SEC's approval just because we're registered with them. Why is the radio program and the firm named the same thing? Because we have to give this disclosure no matter what it is, and it's less disclosurable. It takes less time to do if it's just the same name. So we've been doing this program here uh, on, this in, on this station, 1400 AM in Temple, since 1996. We've been doing this a long time, and we haven't been paid for it ever. Uh, we also Damn. have not ever paid for it. So we've been doing this a long, long time, and the whole idea is education. We do advertise as a firm for on the studio, uh, on the channel, for this radio program. We don't actually advertise for our firm. We're advertising for the radio program. So what we're saying is that this is educational, and we do occasionally get business from it, but our purpose here is truly education. That being said, it's not advice. Advice would be if I knew who you were, if the other bald guy, Jeff, knew who you were, and we were able to have a private conversation with you about things in your best interest versus broadcasting to everyone. So we're going to be talking about education, which is why we do the program to begin with. So those two disclosures are really one. And having said that, do you deem to tell us another disclosure? Yes. The information we present on this educational radio program has been obtained from sources we deem to be reliable, but we make no warranty or guarantee as to the accuracy or completeness of said information. And he really can't get through the week without that. I think right. uh, if you would like to talk to us off the air, we actually give individually, uh, individually crafted and customized advice based on what people are trying to achieve that's generally and portfolio management and portfolio management. And that's generally for people with higher net worths, but we make exceptions occasionally. Um, and so you can contact us locally voicemail available during the weekend, but actual real live people, no phone tree during the week at two, five, four, nine, four, seven, 11, 11. You can reach that line tool free at one, eight hundred nine, one, four, seven, five, two, six. That's eight hundred nine, fourteen plan. And I think it's important to note that we're an independent fiduciary firm. We don't work for a corporation. We only work for our clients. Right. Exactly. Uh, you can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com. There's a contact form. Or you can use emails, Jeff or Jake at tpwc.com. There are 
uh, recordings of the radio program going back years, newsletters going back decades, uh, and you can find us wherever podcasts are given. Um, Thank you very much for listening on a nice Saturday morning. And until next week, this has been The Personal Wealth Coach.